Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. James Bloomfield, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing great. It's great to have you. And so, James, you are the owner and founder of Bloomfield Art Restoration. Yeah, so, that's correct. Yeah. This is kind of a new thing for us because um, the podcast is mostly painting. Um, yeah. But I've always been fascinated with your field. And I'll tell you why I've been fascinated because... Many years ago, I was working on a eight foot tall painting. It was eight feet by six feet and it was done. It was the last day. I just finished it and I started taking it off the easel and I don't remember exactly what happened, but I lost control of it and it fell down and landed on my painting cart and brushes went right through it. <laughs> it was brutal. And then I had to take it to an art restorer and I was mind blown the magic that they performed on that painting. I mean, I literally cried when it happened. I mean, that's a big, expensive painting. And then yes. the the uh, art art restorer just, you know, fixed my world. I guess you could say. <laughs> so ever since well, then, big, I've been how really. What's that? Big tears, how big were the tears that the bushes made? Was it quite a significant impact? Or the t it was more of a hole, so it wasn't too bad. Okay. And then we're going to look at oh. a lot of your work, and you've done much more complex stuff. Yeah. than than what happened there but also literally weeks ago i'm working on a 13 foot painting and i drop a bike rack into it and i put a hole in it so <laughs> coincidentally <laughs> but i already had you on the roster and i'm like oh, oh well that's fitting <laughs> oh no nightmare. Yeah, it is a nightmare i that's the second time in 20 years so i guess it could be worse but that's not too bad to be fair i think that's pretty good going really yeah no it's not it's, it's not I, I'm quite lucky because I, I just see the disasters come in. I never actually see the disasters happen. So I'm always after the effect. So there's a little bit of people have usually gathered their emotions um, after the damage. So they're usually a bit calm. I don't know if I was actually in the room when it happened. I think it'd be a different set of uh, emotions oh. that I'd be feeling. Oh, I, I shouldn't admit it, but I was literally crying. I mean, it was months of work. And then I thought it was, I thought it was done. But um, this art restorer saved it. So... I've always been interested and also I find it an incredible art form in and of itself. So I'm honored to have you on. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you. So my first question is, how did you get into this? Tell me a little bit about why you became an art restorer. Okay. So it's a bit of a roundabout kind of way that it happened. So I always wanted to be an artist. I always wanted to be a painter, got obsessed with oil painting. I was self-taught. I was copying old master paintings as best I could. I was doing my own paintings. Um, I was just really into it. And I spent two or three years trying to be an artist, copying lots of works, trying to sell reproduction paintings, sell my own paintings. And um, basically, I was just obsessed with oil painting and everything to do with it. And um, it kind of took over. So 
I kind of got um, chucked out of the spare room of the house that I was in at the moment. Um, my partner was like, well, you've got too much paint everywhere. You need to get out of here, find a studio. So I went and found a studio. And there was a group of other artists working there. And they were all contemporary artists. And I was the only one who was really doing traditional style painting. So I didn't really fit in there so much. But I carried on doing what I was doing. Um, but after a couple of years of that, that studio closed down. So I was effectively homeless from the studio. So I started looking for other studios in the area that I might be able to move to. And it was just pure chance that I was walking my dog. There was a gallery over the river, uh, Grove Gallery as it was called. And it was a commercial gallery um, with a little sign outside this unit. And above the unit was, um, it was derelict. It was a derelict mill about three stories high. I thought, oh, great, it looks like there'll be some uh, studio space there, maybe. So I went in and had a chat with the owner. And he said, oh, go and talk to my son next door. Um, and he had a contemporary gallery that he was selling his paintings from. And I showed him my portfolio of work. And he was kind of intrigued that I was doing these kind of classical paintings and trying my best to recreate some of these old masters. Um, and he said, maybe you should go and have a word with my dad next door. I said, oh, why is that? He said, oh, well, he's looking for a, an art restorer because um, the girl who was doing it was going traveling. And um, I said, okay. And I'd never really heard about restoration or what it entailed. They took me into the gallery and it was uh, a nice traditional gallery at the front with all the fantastic swept frames, which were just amazing to see anyway. And then through a curtain and I was in this wonderful workshop. It was probably, I don't know, I don't know, two or 3,000 square feet. And there was framing benches, there was mold making, there was all the machinery. And then I saw the process of he had a few paintings that he was restoring at the time and I was just like mesmerized I didn't know what was going on those paintings halfway through being relined those paintings halfway through being cleaned and I was just kind of in a whole new world that I never even knew existed so I ended up showing him my portfolio of work and when the girl left who was doing the restoration he brought me in and then started showing me how he restores paintings and that's kind of how it started. So it was just a complete chance encounter, not even on my radar, even though I was obsessed with painting. Um, and I just fell into this whole new world. It was, it, was, it was brilliant. So where are you? Where where did this happen and where are you located now? So this was in Manchester. So I'm uh, northwest England. Uh, so I, I was living in Salford. And then over the river is Manchester. And I used to walk my dog there regularly. It was literally five minutes from where I was living at the time that I stumbled across this gallery. And he was like the hub for Manchester and the Northwest. So most of the local galleries would bring their work to him to be restored um, and be framed and all sorts of whatever needed doing came to that gallery there. So we had like, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 different satellite galleries that would bring various works in. So. This is probably 20 years ago, so it was, it was busy. You know, it was a busy, a busy studio environment with lots going on. So, yeah. And how old were you when this happened? Uh, 20, what is that, 24, well, 20, over 20 years ago. So yeah, 26, something like that. So I've probably been painting since I was 23 properly, trying to make it. So I've done three years trying to learn my chops and do some exhibitions and get as good as I could be. And then, yeah, I was about 26 when I stumbled into this. And um, funny thing was, though, the first, very first restoration job was at a studio. I'd done some work for a gallery. And it was the same kind of story as you. Another artist had painted this painting. And the gallery owner had put a small inch pair in it. And he said, because he knew I was quite um, 
adept at my oil painting and things like that. So he said, do you think you could repair it? So my very first repair was just repairing this random painting for a gallery owner, which was probably about six months before I actually fell into the actual restoration. So I'd actually restored a painting before I kind of learned how to do it. And that repair was shocking than I did for that gallery owner because I basically just stuck a small patch on the back of the painting. I don't think it was reversible adhesive or anything. It was just a make do and mend kind of patch. Um, the kind of things I see day in, day out now where people have just stuck something on or applied their own kind of repair. Then I have to remedy it. So yeah, I was about 26 when, uh, when I started. Wow. So now your name's on the door. So tell me about that. When did you go off on your own and start your own business? Yeah, so I was with um, George at Grove Galleries for about five years. So I did a five-year kind of apprenticeship there. So I started off doing very basic kind of jobs, learning the ropes. And I think probably the first paintings I worked on weren't even customers' paintings. I'm sure he just bought them from somewhere, real tatty pieces, and he just gave me them to work on in case anything went wrong or, you know, which could, could happen. Um, <clears throat> so I did five years with... George there, learned a hell of a lot. And he was getting to retirement age and he was going out less and less. So I started going out more and more, pricing the jobs up, speaking to clients. And it got to the point where I felt like I was ready to kind of set out on my own. Um, so I kind of just one day was kind of like, right, George, I think I'm kind of going to go my own way a little bit. And he was fine with that. He carried on doing what he was doing. And then I kind of set up on my own. Um, we still kind of kept in contact because I was quite handy with a computer. So he'd always ring me up and say, Jim, I've got a problem with the computer. You've come down and help the computer. And I'd come down and I'd say, George, can I use your relining table? Or I need to make a frame. Can I use your equipment? So we always had a really good relationship. But I think he knew as well as I knew that it was ready to, for me to go out on my own and start my own practice. Mm. That's great. So he wasn't concerned about competition or anything at the time? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think he'd been doing it so long and he'd been doing it long enough that, um, he wasn't that bothered, really, I don't think. He'd, he'd done very well himself, and he'd had a good career as an art dealer as well, so he'd made a lot of money selling paintings. And his son didn't want to actually carry on the business as well. He had his side of things that he was doing in terms of art dealing and selling artwork. So, no, he wasn't too close. He was very good. He, to be fair, he was probably one of the best people I've ever met because he just took me as an artist with dreams and an idea and what he gave me was a skill set that just kept me employed for the last 20 years you know it was really special what he shared with me he managed to give me a career and give me a skill set that would keep me employed as a creative so i'm eternally grateful to him george he was, he was a great guy yeah you said it sounds fortunate that you ran into this guy um, have you, I mean, how have you felt about your career for the past 20 years? Is it, do you feel like it's, uh, has been a blessing that you fell into this? Yeah, it is. But running your own business is tough. You know, it's so difficult to actually kind of, it's, I'd like to say it's feast or famine, but it's never really feast and it's never quite <laughs> famine. It's kind of up and down. So sometimes you'll have really busy periods and the studio's full and you're like, wow, I've got too much on. I need to get some help in. And then before you know it, you've got all those jobs out and you're scratching around thinking, right, where, why is the phone not ringing? What's happening? Where's it, where's it coming in? So I am fortunate that I've done this and kept it going. And I've learned a lot as I've got along. But it's been the one thing that's been a steady throughout because there's always been some, there's always been a call. Can you fix this? I need the frame to this. I need this repair. And so it's always had so it's, it's always brought me work in so yeah i would say it's fortunate yeah and but yeah as a blessing because it scratches that itch you know 
every day is different. Every day I've got a different job to look at. Each 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 piece is different. There's a different story attached to it. So it keeps me interested. There's always a problem to solve. Um, so yeah, in, in in that kind of respect, it's definitely a blessing because it's just so varied. There's so much variety to the work. Yeah, so I looked at some of the work you sent me, and we're obviously going to show it to the viewers, but it's kind of, it's mind-blowing how precise you are and how you can make these tears and rips and other forms of damage absolutely invisible. Have you found, or first of all, have you had time to do your own painting since starting this? And if so, have you found that it's helped your own painting by doing art restoration? I think doing my own painting initially helped me doing art restoration. So for me to learn to paint, I used to just get the best art books I could find on an artist I was inter interested in, whether it was Caravaggio, Vermeer, or someone like Tamara Delempica, and I'd get those art uh, monograms and I would just fail up a painting and I would copy it as best I could and I'd match the colours and I'd try and get it as close as I could to that original. And that's how I learned to mix paints and mix colours and that has just been totally invaluable. Just that process of copying another artist's work and then trying to reproduce that as best you can was just that, to me, is one of the main skills as an art restorer that's held me in good stead. Um, so that has really been a benefit to being an art restorer. And then my own paintings, the flip side of that is you see how paintings arrive into the studio after 50 years or 100 years, or not even that long, maybe 20 years or 10 years. And if the artist hasn't used the correct materials, hasn't prepared his canvas properly or his board, hasn't done certain mm. things in the right order. You've got a disaster on your hands. And that could be within 10 years. It could be within, it can be within six months of an artist bring work in and they've not they've done the ground properly or they've mixed something up with a paint that they shouldn't have done. Um, things, paint's flying off their boards and or there's all sorts of disasters happening. And, and for me, being a restorer, the paintings that have lasted the longest have been the ones that have been prepared traditionally through tried and tested methods. They're the ones that have stood the test of time. A lot of experimental work that comes through is just ugly. Hmm. So, so yeah, it, it does. It does. So, so, okay. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but now I'm really curious. So, you know, there's a lot of debates in the painting world about what are the, um, the best materials to use and best substrates and and like i myself use uh abs to paint on others use like aluminum and they paint on aluminum um people have this big argument about rabbit skin glue versus acrylic gesso um i mean there's all these debates among painters i mean what's your two cents on some of this stuff well, in terms of a restorer, restoring an artwork, if a, a painting comes in and it's on canvas or linen or some kind of fabric, you've got multiple options open to you straight away. If that's torn or if it's um, got a rip in it or a hole in it, there's more things you can do to save that canvas. Mm. If you've got a board or a panel that's warped or twisted or cracked, straight away you've got more problems and you've got more headaches to solve to try and get that right. You've got more at your disposable if it's on like a flexible surface. So even though I don't really enjoy painting on canvas because it takes a long time to get the surface how I want it to be, a lot more preparation, down the line, if something happens to that in 1,500 years' time, other store has got a lot more options to save that painting. If you're on a panel or um, a wooden substrate that's warped or twisted, it's a lot more invasive to kind of set that right. You've got more problems with things like woodworm and rot and various different things and distortions on stuff with panels. 
Um, in terms of metal plate, I'm not too sure on that. I've not had many in for restoration. Um, it can get bent, it can get damaged, it can get dings in it. Um, but again, just to remedy those, you're going to have to be moving that metal, which could cause the paint surface to flake off. So there's various different thoughts on it. But for me, the canvas has just got so much more flexibility in terms of restoration and putting it right if something does happen. Mm. Yeah, that's that would be my two kind of. But I, I love painting on board. If I am painting, I just I just grab a board and I love painting on the board because yeah. it just feels right. Yeah. So what about like cracking and stuff with a painting? I mean, uh, isn't canvas be, being a more flexible substrate? Do you see more cracking in paintings? Yeah. So with the canvas, with the humidity and things moving all the time, yeah, you're going to get more cracks and more fissures as the different layers kind of uh, behave differently over time. So you will get more things happening there. Um, again, it's how it's prepared, how the painters put the paint on in different layers and minimize the amount of crackler that you will get over time. Hmm. Uh, sometimes, like if it, they've gone too fat over lean, the cracks are really, really big. Um, and then sometimes it just depends what kind of ground they've used or what kind of gesso they've used, and it'll just be a smaller kind of crackler or a very minimal kind of movement. Um, but I find the, the paintings that have the most kind of cracking, the old ones, are the ones that have usually been the ones that have either prepared badly or not looked after quite well. So they've not been tensioned up, they've not been kept in the right environment, so the paintings are getting hot and cold and wet and damp and the whole canvas is moving, and that's when you start getting real stability problems with your painting. So, it's usually if something's kept under tension and the humidity is right and the situation is right, that would minimize it. But yeah, there's so many things that can go wrong with a painting, you know, yeah, how you prepare yeah. them. If you're trying to prepare them right from the ground up, there is lots of the traditional ways of doing it do, do work. You look at some of these paintings that are 500, 600 years old and they're in, in great condition. Um, so yeah, it's a. Huh. It's a difficult one, really. So, what's the oldest and um, what's the most, I don't know, significant work you've worked on? Oldest, probably. I've had an icon painted in this week that's probably like 300 years old, maybe 350 wow. years old. And that was on a small little wooden panel that was um, quite solid, about an inch and a half thick. And then that had been shaped, so we had a, a frame around the outside. And then it was um, gessoed and it was tempera painting, so it was all egg tempera, and um, that was old. There was not too much damage to that. There was lots of um, woodworm at the bottom and a few bits where the gesso had cracked off, but other than that, it was pretty solid. It was in pretty good condition. So that was a pretty old one that I've had recently. I've had okay, a few old so paintings. Be before you get, before you move on from that, I got to ask you about yeah. that. So, do you have to carry some insane insurance policy when you're handling these kinds of things? Yeah, so I've got a, an insurance policy to cover everything in the studio. So if a painting comes in, I have to make sure that the insurance policy that I've got will cover the actual stock value of that painting, what it's been sold for or what it's been valued at. Um, and then I also have to have professional indemnity insurance, which covers the work that I do on the painting. So if something should go wrong in one of the processes, heaven forbid, um, that insurance will cover it. So yeah, I've kind of got cover up to like hundreds of thousands of pounds for the professional indemnity. And again, hundreds of thousands for the stock that I'm carrying at any one time. But then sometimes you get a painting that'll come along and 
it just gets so expensive to cover it that sometimes it's just not worth the client bringing it down. So I had a, someone with um, a French Impressionist painting a few weeks ago, and it was worth £128,000. And I was going back and forth with my insurance to try and work out how to cover it. And they were saying, well, who's bringing it to the studio? Who's driving it to you? Who's looking after it while it's there? And it just turned into a, quite a bit of a fiasco to try and get it there. And this was before I'd even seen the painting. This was just to kind of cover it to come in. So in the end, I just said to the client, well, I'll come and visit you at your premises your, and see the painting. And thankfully, it didn't need anything doing. It really didn't need cleaning. There was no benefit to it. So we didn't have to go ahead with it. But just the insurance wrangling to try and, if it was to happen, does just add a headache to it. And those paintings that are expensive, I try to get out of the studio pretty quick. I don't want them hanging around. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a contract for your clients saying that if I screw up your painting, I'm I'm not liable? Yeah, so I have terms and conditions on my back of my my quotation forms. And it's basically kind of saying that although every care is taken, the, I think the insurance wording is that it, the insurance covers the, the cost of the work that I will do on the painting kind of thing. So mm. thankfully, I've never had to do it yet, touch wood. Um, it's all been good, but it's more or less saying that while it's on my premises, I'm insuring it, and if anything happens to it, I'm insured for it, but it's insured for the work that I do on it, not for the necessary the value of the painting. So they can come around to me and say, oh, I've had this painting damaged, it's £100,000, you, you owe me £100,000. It's, it's almost like the cost of the work to be done is covered, if that makes sense. Right. So £100,000, it's a lot of money, of course, but, I mean, obviously, as we all know, there are million dollar paintings out there. I mean, have you ever seen anything much higher than a hundred thousand pounds? Well, not in my studio, um, but at George's, we had Lowry paintings in. We had quite a few Lowry's that had come through and they were a million pound paintings. Uh, maybe at the time, 700,000, and they'd be in for little bits of restoration work to put right before someone was going to sell on. So it'd be a minimal, kind of might be a little fleck of paint that would come off or a little bit of area that needed a bit of addressing. Yeah, they were. They could be up to a million pounds, and it's funny. I don't know when you're in this. When you first start off, you you're a bit in awe of the the cost of the paintings and what they're worth. But at the end of the day, they're just a painting, mm -hmm. you know. So when I first started doing it, I had a small canvas that was kind of A4 size, and George said to me, "How much is that painting worth, Jim?" And I said, "I don't know." So I looked at it, and it was on like a store-bought stretcher really poor quality canvas and it was just a blue swirl just a complete blue swirl and that was it and very thin one layer and um george said how much do you think it's worth and i looked at it and i i had no idea and i just said i don't know 50 60 quid something like that and he was like no it's twenty thousand pounds because it was sir terry frost but this was 20 years ago that painting is probably worth forty thousand pounds now but the face value to me it was just crazy you just look at it and you think, no way. But if someone's willing to pay that, then that's what it's worth. Wow. So, so after that, I treat every painting that comes into the studio the same. Right. Don't get me wrong. If it's worth £50,000, I'm a little bit more conscious of that. I don't want it damaging, and I want to make sure that nothing happens to it. But sometimes you get a painting that's worth nothing, but it's so important to that person. It's got so much sentimental value. You think so? my God, if anything happens to that painting, I'm going to be mortified. So everything gets the same care and attention that you would if it's worth a million pound or 50 quid because that's somebody's painting and they, it means more to them than it would ever mean 
lies or a value to it. So I kind of treat all paintings the same, but yeah, some would get a bit more attention than others. Right. That's cool to hear. You know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about when my daughter was four, she went with me to the first, her first model session. She's 19 now and one of my apprentices. But in our, in our house, we've got this little drawing, this little child's drawing of her first nude and it's yeah. adorable. But I'm thinking that's it's worthless to society. But if it tore or got a hole in it, it's priceless yeah. to me. So I love hearing that. I love hearing that attitude. It's great. Yeah, and this is it. I don't know what's coming through the door. I don't know what the story is that's attached to it. I don't know how much it might mean to somebody. So everything gets the same care and attention that, that, that you have to, I think, as a restorer or a conservator, everything comes in and your job is to kind of either make it better or make it last or make sure it's got a bit more of a lifespan to it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of one of the things that I really like about it. There's always a story attached. There's always that lovely little story, like the picture of your daughter. You, if you brought that to me, I'd think, oh my God, this is his daughter's drawing and I need to make sure nothing happens to it. And I want to make sure he's happy yeah. with it when it comes. And that all comes into the work, that all comes into your process. So that's what makes it special. So, okay, so what is the most significant painting you've worked on in your mind? In terms of importance or? Yeah, well, let's say, let's say two-part. I mean, significant to you personally and significant to society. So maybe two really paintings. That's a really good question. I don't... I don't know. I don't know how to answer that one, really. Okay. I think that the thing is nothing, nothing really springs to mind in terms of significant to me. Um, the one that I sent you the picture of, if we're going to show that later, that had been heavily overpainted mm -hmm. just because that was a real testing ground for me as a restorer to see what was capable and what I was capable of doing. That was like a real learning curve. So that's quite a significant one to me because this painting came in. We can talk about it later. It was totally overpainted. And I managed to get through and find the layers underneath it and reveal what the original artist had intended. So sometimes a painting will come along that tests you and you think, I can't do this. But after it, you've learned so much from doing it that it, it stays with you a little bit. Um, in terms of public importance. Well, I mean, that icon uh, must have been publicly important. Well, the thing is, that was a private customer, but everyone uh -huh. who's seen it, has gone, that's amazing. I, I love that. I love the fact that that's been saved. And it didn't need too much work doing to it. It just needed cleaning and a little bit here and there to put it right. But, but yeah, historically, if you can get something that's 300 years old and then make it last another 200, 300 years just by putting a few things right and, and doing a little bit of work here and there, then that, that, that's, that's a good thing to do too. Yeah. Um, but yeah. if I think of one while we're talking, yeah, I'll come yeah, back yeah. to you. Now. Yeah, we'll come back to that if you think of something. All right, so so let's go ahead and look at some of the stuff that you've done. Um, let's see here. Uh, where do you want to start? So you've got you've got critical damage frames, large pieces, Mary painting, and oleograph. Let's do the Mary painting one because that's the one I was just talking about now. So okay. I think it's All right, the so I've memory. got to find. Oh yeah. Is it, is it in that folder? Right. Okay. So that first image there. So this is the centerpiece of a larger painting that was probably, I don't know, four and a half foot by five foot. And this painting was uh, brought into me by a 
a friend and client who's brought me lots of different stuff. And his uncle was an art dealer and collector back in the 70s. And he had this painting, but he also liked to have a bit of a go himself. He liked to have a bit of a go at doing a bit of work here and there. So this painting was in four pieces and it had been joined together. And then okay. this is what arrived to me, this, all this overpaint. So uh, we've got this person in the middle here, and then we've got baby Jesus with his halo round. And then there's these big brown balls. I'm kind of thinking, what are these big brown balls? Now, he told me already that his uncle had had a go at painting on top of this. And I was like, so I knew So this is his uncle's on. painting, essentially, on top yeah. of a classic painting. This is it. So he's done this. Oh, so, he, no. so I knew that was fresh paint. I knew that that needed addressing. So straight away, you're thinking, right, how long has that been on there? How old's the paint? Will it remove quite quickly? And that's when I started doing my tests on there. So we'd put it under UV light. UV light shows up uh, fresher paint because it comes it shows blacker than original paint. It, it fluoresces really? differently. Yeah, so you put a UV light on a painting, anything that's um, pretty fresh or not original to the artist will show up darker. Is and that because of the concentration of oil or is it something to do with this how dry it is or what i think it's to do with how it oxidizes over time so your original paint layer will oxidize and kind of cure if you like and then it'll kind of form a certain kind of radiance under the uv and then after that when any new paint goes on it it kind of compounds differently so it shows up differently as well and it shows up under hmm. the uv light as darker um, i don't know the exact science behind it i just know that when you put that uv light on there it just jumps out at you the, right. the new paint um, so on this one, there's a, all all that paint you can see is is new and fairly oh, fresh. Maybe gosh, that is old. terrible. It's just, it's just shocking, and it, and I just kept looking at this painting. And I didn't want to start because I didn't know how far I was going to have to go with it. So I started cleaning, doing tests on the paint, see what would remove, and I could start seeing that the paint was coming off. And then this was quite a pivotal moment. So the center of that image, that center line there, is where the two canvases butt together. But the face is looking completely the other direction. And then as what? I was cleaning away, I could, I could start seeing this kind of face, her face appear. So not only had he overpainted the face badly, he'd overpainted it facing the wrong way. I don't understand. I mean, Why didn't oh, this person just use a new canvas if they're not even... <laughs> I don't know. I think what happened was he got this painting and he, and he got it lying, joined back together. Now, whether he did or someone else did, I think what tends to happen if you're untrained in it, you'll think, I'll put this little bit in here and I'll have a little paint here and I'll have a little bit of paint there. And you step back and think, oh, I'm quite happy with that. And then you come back to it again and you keep going and you keep going. Now, as an artist, if it's going wrong, you think, stuff, I'm going to take that all off and start again. But person kept going and kept going and then lived with it for a while and added some more to it so but some of this paint was so thick it was so difficult to remove but once i got to that point there i could see the original paint i thought right well that's that's my base layer now that's what i'm aiming towards oh my um, gosh that's incredible so how do you remove one layer and leave another layer relatively oh. undamaged so the older the paint is, the stronger it is, the more it's kind of, the oil's kind of evaporated, I've gone out of it and hardened, the pigment stays where it needs to be. So you get a paint that's 300 years old, 200 years old, even 100 years old, that paint layer is pretty solid. You're gonna have to do something really aggressive to remove that paint. So you're gonna have to attack oh. it with something. 
So any fresher paint that's, say, five years old, ten years old, you can use a weaker solution and it will just take off the new paint. But if you increase that solution too much and make it too strong, you run the risk of attacking the paint layer underneath. So you do lots of little tests just to remove the very minimum of that fresh paint without getting to that bottom layer. And if you feel like you're on that bottom layer and something's removing, you just stop straight away. And you put like a barrier kind of um, <clears throat> solvent over to stop any further action. So but what the heck do the, you use to get rid of, I mean, is it some kind of stripper or using acetone? I mean, what in the world? No, it's, it's a mixture. So it's a mixture of different solvents. So there's lots of different recipes for lots of different kind of types of painting. Mm. So it'll be a different mixture of different solvents in different quantities. Um, that will remove, first of all, varnish. So the solvents will remove the varnish. And then, again, you can increase the strength of these mixtures that will then remove paint as well. But yeah, I would never use like a commercial paint stripper or anything like that because that would just attack straight down to the canvas and you'd have nothing left. So there are all special recipes that right. George taught me and that I've since read up on about in various different um, books and uh, things like that to try different things. So. Sometimes you'll use one solution and it'll remove the varnish easily. Another time you'll come up, you'll use the same solution. It's a different varnish. So you have to do a different mixture to try and work out what's going to soften that varnish. Okay. So for this painting here, it was just very tentatively making lots of different tests to see what would actually remove the top layers of paint, but leave what was left underneath the original. Um, and you've got stronger pigments as well. So all the time, your zinc whites and your titanium whites are your strongest colours. And your earth tones, your browns and your ochres and your siennas, they're all the weaker colours. So when you're making your solution, you'll test first on your stronger colours to make sure none of that white's going to waltz off. And then you might test on the, the weaker colours, the browns and the ochres. And if your solution's still too strong and they start moving, then you'll weaken the solution further and get it so that nothing's moving at all on that original paint. Yeah, a lot of, lot of trial, trial yeah. and error. So you mentioned the zinc white and titanium white. How do you know the difference after it's dry and mixed with colors? Uh, I don't, unless you used um, like a spectrum analysis. So if you've got like a, a spectrum analysis tool, they can take a small section of that pigment and run a few tests on it, and it'll tell you what properties are in there. Mm. Um, I don't have that at my disposal, so but. I still just think that, that I know that the whites are the stronger colours, so I would always right. test first. But if you if you're at the Museum of Modern Art and you're trying to work out what kind of pigments have been used, they'll take a small sample from the edge of the painting and they'll run these tests on it and they'll work out and they can tell what what's present in there. The analysis will tell them whether it's zinc or titanium or what other kind of uh, properties is made up in that pigment. Okay, but that's not something you really dive into too much. It's mostly just trial I and error. I, do, I don't do that at this level, no. It's me, it's more or less when it's cleaning, it's just kind of getting that solution so I'm not removing any of the old existing paint. It's just taking the of the paint. Right. Well, sometimes right. not even the solution. Sometimes you have to be a bit more mechanical. So you might use like a blunt scalpel blade or a palette knife that you've kind of blunted down just to try and scrape some of that paint off once it's softened as well. So Gosh, that must make you a nervous wreck. I would well, not be able to handle that kind of anxiety. Well, this is this is an extreme case. You don't have to do this all the time, but sometimes when I when I was when I was a lot younger and doing it a lot earlier on, it was it was stressful because I was thinking, is this, real, is this the original paint? Is this the new paint? And sometimes you'd find all you're removing is someone else's repair work. 
So you'd, you'd be cleaning an area and pigment would come off and you'd think, is this the original pigment? Is it repair? What's going on? And then you keep going a little bit and then you'd find some filler underneath and you'd think, ah, right, it's a repair. It's okay. Not me. It's just a repair from someone else has done. I can remove this safely. And you test somewhere else, the original paint stays the same. But yeah, there's elements where your heart does go in your mouth and you think, oh, right, what's happening here? And you stop and then you reassess where you're going with it and you think, so, is this a repair? Is this original? Yeah, it can be quite stressful, um, especially earlier on. As you get older and more experienced at it, you get to notice that there's probably damage there straight away. You can see the bit, you can see the tear, and then you know that it's overpaint. Um, <clears throat> a lot of 19th century portraits, when they've been cleaned in the past, someone rather than clean the whole background, will just put new paint on all the way around the head and the shoulders. We'll just put new brown paint on our new black paint, just to freshen it up a little bit, so you know full well that that's just going to be all new paint that's going to have to remove so the more paintings you work on you start realizing what might happen with them or what you can be aware of happening well i suppose if you're a good enough painter you could just clean off right down to the bare canvas and just paint the client a painting and give it to him yeah you could you could <laughs> take a long time though <laughs> yeah. yeah i think that's part that's part of it i think that's part of it you've got to be able to be able to put back in what's what's missing yeah particularly in this one because technically yeah you've got you're down to the original painting, but it is a mess. I mean, that is cracked yeah. and peeled. And I mean, look at these little blue specks here. Is that the, that, that's the new paint, isn't it? There's some new paint there, yeah. And then, the, 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 I think that there's other tones in there underneath that are a lot more faded and stuff. So this Jeez. is an extreme case. And yeah, it was, it was in a bad way. I think I had this painting for like 18 months. Wow. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to pull up another one. I'm going to, I'm going to keep them yeah. in lined up like that. Cause I find it so interesting to see the process there. Yeah. So in this one, uh, are you done at this point? I mean, is that as good as it's going to get as far so, as yeah, got, peeling it off? We're getting there now. So this one, we've got, we've got a lips good a nose is there. You can see the structure of the face. Um, and then that big central area of filler, was solid it was about kind of i don't know four mil deep and it was full of filler and oil and all sorts of horrible stuff so i was trying to scrape all that out and get rid of that as well but it still had a horrible join a horrible fissure there um <clears throat> but yeah more or less everything there we're getting down to original there's a little bit on a on a, underneath the chin and the neck area that still needs to remove but at least at this point i'm thinking right i'm, I'm getting down to the original painting of what the artist intended uh, unfortunately, there's not much of it left. Wow. All right, I'm going to go. Oh, dang it. This one's not working. Oh. Wonder what happened there. Sure. What's the next one? Okay. So, yeah. what is this here? So, these ones, so again, I don't know if I've, if, if, I don't know if I sent the, if the last slide might show what they looked like before they were cleaned. So, they, that's those ladies at the bottom cleaned. Okay, wait. Uh... Oh, maybe no i only see this one image unfortunately all oh, oh, right okay well these ladies here were more or less overpainted as badly as the one the, the main uh, the virgin mary at the top here they were covered in paint they were awfully rendered just slapdash paint over them and again i started cleaning those off and then the, 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 these faces started to appear and the modeling on these faces was just beautiful and they were in a far better condition than the um, the main figure. Um, so even though there was a lot of overpainting on there, 
because I'd done so much extensive work at the top, I was easily able to find out what was underneath and they were in such better condition. But again, it was a similar kind of transformation. I think the on my Instagram account, I've got the before and after, so then maybe I didn't send them over. But yeah, they were completely covered again, and it was a matter of removing all that overpaint to find out what was underneath. My gosh. Um, but yeah, they were, they were lovely. The, the, the faces on those ladies were great. I think this whole painting, the history of it, was that the, these, they were a shipping family. So this whole painting, she was, she's protecting the family. And I presume these ladies at the bottom were actual real people to do with the family. And on the other side of the painting, you can just see that some of the gentlemen that must have been family members as well. Um, there's a proper name for it, but it escapes me at the moment. But all the symbols, like the the, the, the little trinkets they're holding, they, these were like the crest, the family crest. And that on on the main figures, that was their family crest that she was wearing as well. And it kind of all came through the painting. So there's lots of different um, little clues there about who the family were and what they were involved in. And in the background, there were some ships in the background as well. So it was it was it was a, it was a great painting that had just been really badly treated. Yeah. So I assume at some point then you went in and you fill in all these little cracks and crevices and whatnot. Yeah. So again, it's a decision what definitely needs filling with actual conservation filler, matching the texture of the painting. So you'd go in there, you'd fill the small areas, you'd remove the excess, um, <clears throat> and then then you start retouching. So you're retouching in using the color palette that you've got there, see what um, what's actually been missing, and then. You're trying to put in what's missing without going too heavy over the top to make it completely different. So sometimes it might just be a glaze. It just might be a little glaze that hides all those cracks and all those fissures. Uh, and it's enough to make it, from viewing distance, seem solid again, rather than troweling on the big load of paint to try and kind of make it look new again. So sometimes it's just about adjusting it at viewing distance so that your eye can enjoy the painting without going too deep in and putting too much new paint back in. Uh, again, that's a big argument of, uh, amongst lots of the conservation field and the stores is how different, different, um, <clears throat> I don't know how to say cultures will do it. So I know the Italians will do just thin lines so they can show that it's been restored. From a distance, your eye blends it to make it look like it's been restored, um, but it's not trying to recreate what is actually missing. Whereas in the kind of say British field of restoration or certainly certain parts during Victorian times, it's very much about restoring and making it look like there was no damage whatsoever. Mm. There's actually official names for them, but again, they slipped my mind. But um, right. yeah, there's different schools of thought to how much you should get involved in it without making it a different painting to what it is. So there's always a discussion about how much fresh paint you put on there because you could start changing the original intention so a lot of it comes down then to kind of like the ethics behind it as a restorer hmm. yeah and i've i've you know i used to be an antiques roadshow junkie and i just remember them talking about that on antiques roadshow with furniture too don't strip it it won't be worth what it's what it used to be worth even even if it's all chipped and cracked and so it seems like the same sort of mentality yeah, it's a funny one with paintings. Uh, I see lots of debate online that people say you should leave the varnish on there. It's, oh, it's old, it's discoloured, it, it is what it is. Um, but then the counter argument is that that painting is no longer how that artist intended it. Those materials have degraded over time. That varnish is yellowed over time because it's oxidised. So by cleaning it off, all you're doing is showing how it originally was. 
Um, but I do see uh, quite a lot of comments online about people saying, oh, you just left the old, you just left the old manager. It looks so what? much better. No, no, no. So, okay, as an artist, that's why we put it on. So you can take it off and put a fresh coat on later for crying out loud. This is it. It yeah. protects it. So, right. And I have a lot of... I have a lot of debate with my art, friends of mine. And I said, do you vanish your paintings? They go, no, I don't vanish them. I'm like, okay. But you know all that dirt's going to land in all them crevices and someone's going to have to clean it. And then a lot of the, the cleaning straight onto the paint layer. So the, the restorer's got more chance of damaging the paint layer because there's no varnish to protect that paint right. layer. The varnish is applied to protect the painting so it doesn't need glazing. And then a restorer can just take the varnish off and put a fresh coat back on and that's the whole purpose of it. You know, that's what it's there to do. Huh. That's strange. There's even a, even uh, contention over that issue. It doesn't make any sense. No, I, I don't. And I, and I kind of say to a lot of my, so the other thing is that we all know as artists that they always say, don't varnish your work for after a good six months or, you know, after it's had time to dry. One of the big problems I have with a lot of say contemporary artworks, artworks from the sixties and the seventies, is that a lot of the paintings were a bit experimental, shall we say, in terms of materials, but a lot of them are varnished very, very quickly. And what happens is that varnish layer fuses so quickly to that paint surface that when yeah. you try and clean it, you're removing the varnish, but because it's kind of formed with the paint layer, you can run the risk of the paint layer removing as well. So it's really important to make sure you have that time allowed for the paint surface to fully cure and dry before you put that final layer of protective varnish over the top just so it can have a, like a separation to it because it can be a problem um, but sometimes with my own paintings i'm eager to get them out you know it's a commission you want it varnished you want it out you want it looking good but i've kind of tried to slow that down a little bit now or i've done the commission and then told the, the client to bring it back within six months and mm. then i'll put a, a varnish on it um, so yeah, that's something to think about as well. So there are manufacturers though, and I don't want to name, name any names. I don't know what the legal ramifications for that would be, but there are manufacturers that claim that, that they make a varnish that you can put on as soon as your painting is dry to the touch. Do you know anything about any of those? I know that a lot of people use retouching varnish. So I know that some artists will kind of finish their paintings with a retouching varnish, which isn't as, um, I don't know if it's as strong or as long lasting as an actual, say, Damar varnish or a gloss varnish. Um, so I know people that will put a retouching varnish over the top that will give a uniform finish. Um, yeah, but that's not intended to be removed. That's still going to soak into the paint. Yeah, it's going to it's going to sit on the top. Um, but then the other thing is, there's lots of kind of technical innovations these days where the acrylic varnishes are totally different kettle of fish to the old fashioned Damar varnishes and mastic varnishes that were mm. all pine resin. So maybe these acrylic ones can be applied straight away. I use certain varnishes that are kind of acrylic based, um, more modern than the original ones. And a lot of the restoration kind of community use, everything's fully reversible. So I make up certain varnishes that I can apply straight away. So maybe they're the same kind of varnishes that manufacturers are saying you can put on your paint. Oh, okay. It's probably worth just reading into it and questioning. Right, yeah. We'll be right back after this short testimonial by one of my online mentorship students. If you're interested in learning more about how you could study with me, either online or in person, check out heinatelier.com. That's H-E-I-N. A-T-E-L-I-E-R dot com. I've been doing Jeff's online 
mentorship program for about a year now, and it is awesome. Everything is online, super streamlined. If you can be there, I mean, you have the ability to talk to him once a week, and he can review your work and help you. If you can't be there, it's pre-recorded. You can go back and even re-watch things if you missed something during class or couldn't be there. So the online portion of it is almost better than real life because you can always go back to it, which is awesome. The demos are recorded. It's just like all available whenever you need it. And I'm a stay-at-home mom of four and my time is limited and it's also very interrupted. And so to be able to go back has been clutch for me. And you get to work with Jeff Hine, who's awesome. He's tough. The assignments are simple, but difficult and they're difficult to make us all better. And he's able to give us these assignments, coach us through it, help us stay excited to progress. And so it's just been a great experience. I am so grateful that he has been willing to take time away from his own art to offer all of us to have it. So if you're thinking about doing it, it's amazing. Welcome back to the show. Before we move on, I just want to look at the before and after of these two paintings. I mean, I, we don't see the finished touched up version, but just even oh. seeing it stripped down to the original painting is kind of mind blowing. This, this is it. And I think the finished one didn't have too much on there other than hiding this central kind of tear down the middle because you can't put too much on there because there's so much missing that you'd have to kind of build up all the layers. So it's probably just minimal little bits in there to try and make it look whole. But yeah, compared to what was brought into the bar, it's just Oh, it's crazy. ridiculous. It's not even the same painting. <laughs> <laughs> and what, yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Nice job. All right, so let's see. Let's uh, pull up another set of paintings uh we've got large pieces oleograph frames and criminal damage uh oleograph's quite an interesting one that's another it's a similar example to that one though it's sort of like overpainting to reveal a, a photograph underneath so is this before or after that's before so that, that was someone took a uh, before I think the, the last one should be the, the one framed you can see it framed you can see again it's just removing overpaint this one again okay. so that's after you can see that an oleograph was like a victorian photograph that gets overpainted to make it look like a painting oh so is that this, what that is yeah so it's a photograph and then if you couldn't afford a real oil painting oh my then you would Right. Okay. So what oh happened here? Though, this, That's this, insanity. This, yeah. So this oily graph was in original condition. A customer took it to a different restorer to be cleaned. And this restorer had it for a year and he kept chasing it up saying, where's my painting? Have you got it back? Will we need it back? And eventually the restorer kind of said, I've not finished it yet. If you come in a few months, you can have it. And the, my client was like, no, I want it now. I want it back. So the, the small, boy was this customer's great great grandfather okay um it looks more like austin powers mini me 
It does, yeah, or like Uncle Fester <laughs> or something. And the funny thing was, this did come through a Halloween, so it was kind of a good Halloween kind of painting to work on. Um, so yeah, the, the restorer had cleaned off the oleograph that had been varnished, and they took off all the original overpainting that had been done. So for all intents and purposes, the painting that the client had took in had been cleaned, and then the previous restorer had overpainted to try and remedy what they'd done. And again, it was just a poor case of, too much heavy overpainting that just completely changed the face of the young boy and the little girl as well. So in this instance, it was again, it was very much a case of telling the client what they had, which was an overpainted photograph. The previous restorer, unfortunately, had overpainted the entire thing, and my job would be just to try and find what I could find underneath. So I didn't promise anything. What I, what, I didn't know what was left, basically. Well, the client had a small photograph, a very old photograph of it from a few years ago. So I knew that what they presented to me was nothing like it should have been. So again, tested on the, the white areas just to see my solution and see what would actually remove. And then once I'd found that this paint was just waltzing off, because it was so fresh, like six months old or two months old, as soon as you put your swab on, the paint just waltzes off, it's off. And then I could start seeing the original photograph underneath. So this was just a matter, again, of removing that overpaint to reveal the original photograph. And once I've got to that point where I revealed the original faces, I, I just stopped and said, look, I've got your faces back and I can kind of show that that's the character of the people that were photographed. And I don't think you're going to benefit by me retouching anything in. If I start adding fresh paint on, it's going to start looking like mini-me again. So we decided that we were just going to remove that old paint, stick with the original um, photograph of the children and then she was more than happy because she'd got her original piece of work back. But again, no value to it at all. No one else is going to value that piece of work apart from that family. And this poor lady was just mortified that she took it somewhere and hadn't had the right kind of approach to the care that it needed. So she was really pleased that we'd managed to actually salvage it and get it back. So sometimes it's not so much a full restoration, it's, it's conservation, it's salvaging that artifact or that object as much as possible. Um, but yeah, it did kind of, it made me smile and it made me cry at the same time because I was just kind of horrified that mm. the difference, what it looks like. And again, it's an example of someone having to go at restoration and going too far and not knowing when to stop, maybe. Yeah. What was that famous painting that got, that was all over the news that got restored? Uh, and they yeah. made it look like a monkey or something. Yeah. That was a cleaner in Spain, and she was cleaning a painting. She was cleaning, and it was—I don't know if it was a small chapel—but she cleaned this painting to try and revive it. And she obviously damaged it, and then she started retouching it in and painted it back. But by the time she painted it, it looked like animal with like the world's margin, or it looked like a monkey, which is absolutely shocking. And it was just everyone was horrified. But now, I think that church gets more tourism than any of anywhere else in the region. <laughs> People go to see it. Now, I don't know if they, I can't remember if they kept it as she did it or if they took that back to restore what was left. But yeah, they get so much more tourism now just for the fact that it was just such an awful story. But then this is, this is a similar kind of thing. People have a go and think, oh, I can do this and I'll back in and stuff. And yeah, leave well enough alone. So you're in the wrong business being good at this. You should be bad at this and figure out a I way to profit be. from it. This is it. I should be doing really, really poor restoration. That's incredible. But the reason I ask oh. about that lady is because for the for the rest of us in the world, we're like, this can't be real. 
But for you, as a professional restorer, you see this stuff all the time, it looks like. Yeah, yeah all the time. People have a go on painting on the canvas or doing their own repair. I had a lady say, I've got an oil painting here and I've cleaned it. I said, oh, yeah, what did you clean it with? She said, well, I went online and they said, if you rub linseed oil over the front of the painting, it will clean it. I said, okay. I said, did it work? And she said, no, it didn't work. I said, okay, do you want me to have a look at it? She said, yes. Yeah. So I went around to a house. So I knocked on the door and I heard this big almighty bark of a massive dog behind the door. And I thought, oh God, what am I going to let myself into here? And anyway, she got the dog in the kitchen and she brought the painting out. And this painting was thick with olive, like, it was olive oil rather than linseed. I think it was cooking oil, but it was full of dog hair as well. Because it's obviously oh. got this dog in, this painting was covered in oil and dog hair. And it was just awful. So sometimes some of these paintings you get, you just really don't want to be handling them because it can be quite, Grotty and grimy. Oh. But, yeah. Well, at least it wasn't so, linseed oil, so it didn't dry to a film, at least. No, I think, I think it was olive oil. I think she'd actually used olive oil or something. And it was just this horrible, furry mess of a painting. Oh, my uh, gosh. But yeah, people go online and have a look and say, What do we use? And how shall I use this or I use that? And I just say, I'm not telling you because if I say use this product or use this mixture and then they do it and damage it, then right i'm in trouble then i've right. kind of given up advice so i always kind of stay away from that yeah that's that's probably really smart <laughs> um yeah that's incredible oh one question about that actually let me pull that back up uh, i didn't mean i shouldn't have closed that so one question i had about this was if it's a photograph it's on paper then yeah and yeah, so, so you're removing car. paint from paper without how do you do that without damaging the paper this is it. So an oily graph, if I get an oily graph in the studio, the first thing I say to the client is, right, what you've got is a photographic print been painted over by an artist 100 years ago, and then they varnished it to make it look like a painting. Um, <clears throat> as soon as I start cleaning, if I'm too aggressive or my mixture's wrong, if I take the varnish off, I run the risk of removing the overpaint. But worse than that, any ink that's on that paper will just disappear. Mm. So that's the warning if I get an oily graph. Through. A lot of people have these because they think I've got an old painting, it looks like a painting, but you can just tell straight away from the way it's composed on the um, position of the sitters that it's a photograph. Um, so I tend to warn the client that we'll have a go. If I can remove the varnish safely without affecting the paint layer, then we're, we're good to go. I can, I, can, I can crack on and I can remove the varnish, but invariably I try to avoid them because you're just opening a can of worms. All of a sudden, you've got nothing left. And like that past restorer, luckily, she hadn't cleaned too much of the original um, photograph off, so you can still see small details of the faces. But yeah. if she'd gone any further, you've got nothing left then. That whole photographic print's gone as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah, you would think you'd almost melt the paper. I mean, solvent and paper don't mix. So No, uh, especially the inks as well. The inks would just disappear, the, the kind of however the photograph's produced or whatever it is. All right, so um, we've done oleograph, Mary painting, large pieces, criminal damage, and frames. Which one do you want here? Uh, let's do criminal damage. Oh, this one is something else. This one's quite interesting. Yeah. Well, so what happened? So I got, I got a call from a lady, and she said, I've got a painting. It's been damaged. It's been torn. Can you have a look at it for me? And I said, yeah, I'll have a look at it for you. So I came around to her house and knocked on the door. She opened the door. And she um, showed me the painting. <clears throat> and basically, she'd been burgled. So the house had been burgled. And this was a portrait of her late husband. And what they'd done, they'd 
tackled this painting and they've actually slashed it with a knife because some burglars believe that people put things of value behind paintings, like they put money behind there and things like that. So they went in and they targeted this painting thinking particularly that there's something behind it. So they just slashed it horizontally <sighs> twice uh, to try and find out if there's anything behind there. And unfortunately, well, there was nothing behind there. And this was the damage that they'd left. So there were really horrible horizontal tears and all the frayed canvas and the impact had kind of distorted the canvas as well. So it was really, horrible kind of impact and the lady just wanted it back on the wall because her granddaughter kept saying where's the portrait of granddad i want to see granddad and she didn't want to show it her in this state because it was just horrific um <clears throat> so this one was relined so it was taken off the original stretcher um flattened out to kind of remedy all the cockling a bit of humidity to kind of flatten the canvas out and then relined match those tears up because they were quite big there was quite a gap between the where the two edges of the canvas met so we had to fill that in and it was on a modern canvas so we matched the texture of the canvas as well with the filler and then we retouched in as best we could to kind of minimize the fact that it had been slashed so badly so when you reline it you just put another piece of canvas behind it is that what you mean yeah yeah so there's different methods um but basically it's the canvas is off the stretcher do what you need to do in terms of flattening it out and then you apply adhesive, uh, different adhesives for different kinds of canvases or different methods of um, relining. A new piece of fabric goes over the whole painting and then it goes on a vacuum table and the heated vacuum table activates the adhesive whichever you're using and the vacuum compresses the canvas together um, to the new canvas. So the actual pressure from the vacuum flattens everything out and that's one of the magical things that helps with tears like this on the canvas. Mm. So the first time I saw a painting being relined, my mind was blown. I was like, there's no way you can repair that, George. It's, it's a disaster. And he showed me the whole process and then just the whole magic of the relining table and the vacuum and the heat was just incredible. So then off the table, it comes out pretty much flat, but then you've still got to address the actual missing areas of paint. So then that will be filled and then retouched and color matched to kind of push that back. So how do you prevent all those fibers from folding back under and creating a bump between the layers? Uh, some of the big fibers will be um, trimmed if they're sticking up too much. If they're, if they're going to kind of form that kind of peak, you might trim them. Um, other times when you're laying it flat on the table, you'll align them. You'll try and align them and reweave them back together to try and make sure that match it up perfectly because otherwise, like you say, you'll have a form of bump on the back of the painting or on the front of the painting the wrong way on the table so you try and match them as much as possible to try and line them all up um and then there's different ways of doing like thread matching and things like that where they'll actually kind of thread match and sew those together and use different types of glue to kind of make those line up better before it goes on the table so so you literally yeah, in some cases glue the little individual strands back together yeah yeah thread by thread it's called thread term mending and some of the wow. things that you can do without people do that is incredible but yeah it depends on the table this one was quite big so it was lining up as best you could remove anything that's going to cause a, a, a defection on the front and then put it on the table um smaller tears you might just just treat it from the back and just do the tear by the, the thread by thread method and um line it up that way. okay so let's look at what you did to it this is awesome that's incredible. 
but yeah, look so how you, long it is. I mean, you can still see it would be impossible to hide still, it completely. Yeah. yeah, you can still see it um, going the way across. But again, like say from viewing distance, where you would view a painting from say two or three feet away, it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I may well have gone over that again a little bit, but um, yeah. And it was such a nice painting as well. It was nice to get those tones in there. Um, when you hide that damage, it's nice. You might do a few passes, you build up your layers, and when you actually start seeing it disappear, it's, it's a great feeling. And then you'll, you'll varnish that, and then you might adjust the colors a little bit more to kind of get them just right. And then I kind of let things sit, so it'll go on a different part of the studio. I think, right, I've finished, I'm done. I'm leaving it where it is now. And then you'll look at it and you'll keep looking at it and then you might go over and you might just do another little bit. And you're always constantly just trying to get it perfect. You're trying to get it 100%, but you, you never will. Hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine try. how you could. So one thought I had, I paint very transparent and opaque. I mean, it, I'm very concerned about using the properties of uh, transparent opacity in oil paint in order to accentuate form. And I imagine if there was a rip right down the middle of a face that I painted, you'd have a heck of a time trying to patch it because you would also have to, to do it, to do it really well, you'd also have to mimic the transparency and opacity in the different areas of the face and which would seem impossible. I mean, yeah. have you seen situations like that where it's like, I'm just going to have to go opaque here because obviously I can't go transparent or you'll see the tear. So when you say you opaque transparency, are you building up different layers with varnishes and things on top of each other? No, or? meaning like the shadows, like the darkest shadows are transparent. And then as I move from yeah. the darkest dark, I get progressively more opaque as I move into the lights. Yeah. And so yeah. when you're in that transparent area and you have a tear and you're trying to fix it, you can't go transparent because you'll still see the tear. Yeah, so you'd have to build up, you'd have to build up more opaque layers and then use uh, varnishes and glaze to try and match that transparency. Oh. Yeah, it gets, really, it gets really difficult though. Some of the old paintings, the old portraits where they have the black, it's so hard to match that black because you put new paint on there, it looks opaque straight away. You have to really kind of experiment with different glazes and involving different pigments to try and match that. And that's one of the hardest things to do because they get such a lovely glossy dark black area and you're putting fresh paint on there and it just sticks out like a sore thumb yeah so like you, you stuck tar on it or something yeah exactly yeah it's horrible yeah. it's like a big gray splodge on there and you're like oh god how am i going to get this but you have to kind of build it up and add the different layers in and then try and just keep going with it till you get it um but yeah it, that is really difficult i hate being black black's horrible wow <laughs> yeah so I, okay well this is unbelievable and it's really particularly incredible in the face the way you hid that this client must have been thrilled yeah she was really pleased and she put it straight back up on the wall and she sent me a nice email saying she was so pleased to have the painting back up and the granddaughter liked seeing her granddad again and things like that make you feel really good i almost feel bad taking money off the client because i've enjoyed doing it and i've enjoyed the whole process and i just wanted to fix it for the lady i just wanted to fix that painting for her and I was just really pleased that she was happy with the work. So yeah, it's nice when that happens. You you come away with a good feeling thinking I've done a good job. And that's why the, the story is important. If, if I didn't care who that guy was, I didn't know the story behind it, I wouldn't be as invested. But once you know the story that's involved in there, 
and what it means to the to the person when you're invested in it as well you want great results for them too yeah yeah i've been robbed before and it's not a good feeling and i can't imagine how it would feel to have a painting of your own father get torn during a robbery i mean that's a huge service that you provided doing that fixing that it's really awesome yeah so tell me about this one okay so this is this is a really nice story i think um so this lady um i've got a client that i've been working with probably for 10 years and he rings me up every now and again and he'll say jim i've got another painting i'll be like okay bob what have you got and basically what he's doing is his family down the line um, were quite well-to-do, quite wealthy. I'm talking 200, 300 years ago, they had, they had money, lots of money, and they had all these um, fabulous paintings. And then somewhere down the line, one of his relatives gambled everything away, lost everything, sold everything off, sold the house, sold the paintings, just got rid of everything. Um, and he has got in touch with this other guy who thought he was researching his own family. But what it turned out to be was Bob's family. So I've got these portraits, Bob, and I think they're part of your family tree. So he looked at them and three or four small portraits and he went through his family tree and there were portraits of his relatives. And for the past 10 years, he's been tracking down all these paintings through various auction houses and looking online. And every now and again, he'll come across one that belongs to his family. Hmm. So this is a recent one. Um, that he came across in Belgium. So my client lives in Cheshire, England, which is northwest England. I think the family's from Norfolk, if I remember, so down in the uh, southeast. And this was one that turned up in Brussels. God knows how he got there. Um, but he bought it from auction, and it got shipped over to Manchester, and he bought it straight down. Um, but again, she was very yellowed. She had a very thick varnish on there, and then... A chest area she had some horrible drips of something on there that we weren't quite sure what they were um so again it was a matter of testing it putting on the uv light seeing what had happened and unfortunately during that process we discovered that she'd been badly damaged again so she's got a vertical tear from the nose all the way down the chest and then across the chest as well so i think in the next slide if you look at the next slide you'll see part way through the cleaning process and see what we oh kind wow of that's crazy so, so the, the, the actual clean, the varnish was just shocking yellow, just totally discolored. So when you do a test, you do a little small test and you get to see the original paintings made, you're just like, oh, I'm really happy because I know the client's going to get a really good result. So that was the first thing, which was really nice. And then the second thing was this horrible stain. I'm still not quite 100% sure what it actually was, but that removed nicely as well. So I was really pleased that that kind of came off. But just the colours, the, the colours of the face that came through was just lovely. Um, but again, it had a horrible, once I was cleaning the varnish off, the past overpaint, the past restoration work that had been done, removed. And you can see that horrible scratch across the cheek. Mm -hmm. And then that actually went vertically down as well. Um, I'm not sure if the next slide shows the actual, I don't know if I put that in or not, but um, it may be well have been Oh man! Oh, yeah, yeah. So you can see across there a little bit more. So God knows how it happened, but it went all the way across the face, <clears throat> and that's all original filler, all historical filler that's been there for however long the damage has been there. Um, but again, removed that all off to get back to the original painting, <clears throat> and then carefully retouch it and colour match. But 
where a chin is, it was such a soft shadow. Certain things, certain parts of certain faces are quite hard to put in. So again, just matching those tones and trying to get that lovely soft shadow in without giving her an extra double chin was quite difficult to do. And it was a matter of keep coming back and stepping back to make sure that was right. Um, and then bits in the background aren't too bad to put in. Artists tend to use the same kind of tones and pigments in the background. So they're usually quite straightforward to match. Um, but yeah, it was just a nice one to do. Sometimes you get a clean that's really nice, the varnish comes off easily, um, and you get a really good result. Um, and then that one, the frame, got restored as well. So we restored the frame, that was cleaned, and then we used different bronzing powders to, to brighten that up as well. Um, and again, he was he was really happy. He said, it's a, it's a shame she's such a plain-looking girl. It's like a plain <laughs> portrait. But he was quite happy that he'd managed to find her and get her back. And again, she's hung in the house with all these other portraits that he's tracking down. So I imagine Bob will be kind of ringing me up in another few years time, three years time, four years time, say, Jim, I found another painting. Um, can you clean it for me? And it'll just be another one of these paintings. And I just love that story that he's tracking down this artwork that's been dispersed and he's bringing it back to his family. I just I just love the fact that he's doing it. I think it's really great. And um, yeah, wow. it's interesting. He had another portrait, though, of a different lady, and she was wearing exactly the same dress. So that must have been the family dress that you got your portrait in, because the other lady, totally different lady, wearing exactly the same dress. Oh, that is weird. That's I mean, got to be surreal to, have your fam to find your family floating around your country. I mean, how many of us had our families painted in the 1700s? <laughs> Not many. Not many. I and didn't have a word in my dress. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my ancestors were doing. They were doing something wrong. Yeah, I know. Mine certainly didn't have the money for that. That's incredible, man. Yeah, you really hid that well. That's... Yeah, she, she turned out well. And the frame was nice as well. So the frame had been... What tends to happen with old frames is they get... Um, someone will spruce them up with a bit of gold paint or a spray paint or something. And it doesn't really last. It kind of changes colour over time. So we'll clean that up, clean that off if necessary. And then we'll refinish, so we'll either re-gild it or use bronze powders and different washes to try and not make it look too layery. But that one looks quite nice. I thought it was quite a nice finish on that one as well. Yeah, and you're going to tell us, we've got one more set of images to look at, but then you're going to tell us a little bit more about the frame thing, because I find that yeah, really sure. interesting as yeah. well. All right, so we're going large pieces. Okay. Okay, so that's got to be, if the door is seven feet tall, that's got to be an eight-footer. Oh, so that's the size of the painting that I dropped. That's what you damaged. Yeah, that's how big it was, to put it in perspective. Oh. Yeah, well, it killed me. Yeah, so, so tell me about I, this one. So when I started restoring, being in Northern England, we got a lot of Northern artworks, a lot of people trying to be Lowry, a lot of small pieces. And I'd look at other restorers online and they all seem to have these fantastic paintings, these huge paintings. And I'd be like, oh, I just want to do some big paintings. I want some huge paintings to do. I feel like a proper restorer. But I've got like a massive painting in the studio. And just what a nightmare they are to deal with. It's so big. I had to carry it up two flights of stairs because it wouldn't fit in the lift. I had to kind of maneuver the whole studio around just to fit it in. It took so long to clean off. There was so much varnish on there that needed removing. I think it's had a frame, had a giant frame as well that needed restoring as well, that all rotten, so I had to do all the work in the frame. It was just, it was just, it was just one of these things that 
you know when you think you want something and when it comes along you don't actually want it or it's not quite how you yeah. imagine yeah so I, I had this i had this huge painting and i was like that was just a complete nightmare and then two weeks later i had another two large paintings the same and i had a, two more large paintings that we got and i was sick of it so i said what i'm going to do i'm going to just through that door together close the door completely and just have a little three foot by two foot gap and if it doesn't fit through the three foot by two foot gap i'm not doing it because it's just it was just such a headache to try and deal with it but anyway again what I, what happened was there was a bit of a phase where i had a few clients that were moving houses and they had big properties and they had big walls to fill so they were buying these big portraits to fill these big houses that they had and they didn't really care who the painting was, who the artist was, anything about it, just as long as it looked right in their environment. So I don't know who this boy was. I don't know anything about him. There was no signature. There was no nothing. It was just a matter of cleaning him up. And he was just going to sit in this house because it was like an interior design piece. So there wasn't much of a story involved. So it didn't really grab me the same kind of way. Um, but it just made me realize that, you know, it might feel, your ego might feel really great to do these large paintings, but actually the reality of it is I'd much rather work on a smaller painting that's, you know, well executed and easier to clean and easier to touch in. Um, but yeah, so luckily yeah. the biggest ones I've got in at the moment are say, I don't know, four foot by three foot. I'm quite happy with that because otherwise it's just turned into a logistic nightmare. Yeah, and well, the next, I think I got some other big ones in one Christmas. That's as well. how it is for 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 painting originals too. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes I wonder why I paint big. So yeah, what's going just, on well, here? Right, so this was an interesting one. Not not restoration as such, but this um, again another big painting. This flag was from now. You tell him. Sorry, you were asking me before about a significant piece. This is a, probably one of the most significant pieces I've had because this flag was actually at the Battle of Waterloo. Oh wow! In, okay, in, see in, there, you had one. It was there. It got there. <laughs> it was there uh, all along. So I got a phone call, and I, a guy said, "I'm. Um, do you do reframing? Do you frame restoration?" I said, "Yeah, I do frame restoration." He said, right, I've got two flags that need uh, reframing. I said, "Okay." And, and then I didn't hear from him. I gave him a price. I priced him for some new acrylic, tidied the frames up, and that was it. I didn't hear from him. And then I got a call a few weeks later from um, a guy from a barracks, really nice soldier. He'd obviously been given the job of reframing this because his whole army unit was debunking from uh, Blackpool somewhere down south. So all their artifacts, all their objects were being debossed or whatever they call it and moving down south. But I had two of these flags that needed reglazing, um, and this was a flag that had been it had been attached to a piece of board, and it was battered and it had holes in it. And luckily, I didn't have to do anything with it other than fix the frame and put some new glazing on it. But just to have that piece of history in the studio it was just mind blowing, really. To think that flag was on the battlefield at Waterloo, it was just absolutely incredible. And that was what I was quite nervous about because there was so much history attached to that flag that was just incredible so is it literally missing through here what's going on here i can't remember if that's missing or if that section's cleaner than the other section oh but that was sometimes with these flags they're so battered that they've been laid down onto canvas as well so it'd be a piece of hardboard or board they'll stretch fabric around it and then they'll attach the flag to it and then on the reverse of this, so when I took it out of the frame on the reverse, mm -hmm. there sections of another flag. Well, that flag obviously had perished. So there was just small elements of it that they'd managed to save. 
and that was on the reverse when I took it out of the frame. Um, but again, it was I think that was six or seven foot by seven foot, and it weighed an absolute wow. ton, and it, and it was just a nightmare. And I was just terrified of anything happening to it. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a nice one. So that's probably one of the coolest things I've worked on in terms of history. That's incredible. So. Uh, yeah. No, I completely lost my train of thought. I'm so amazed by this flag. I'm a painter and the flag is the one that's getting me, like just yeah, the history behind it. Yeah, it's just the history. You, yeah. you know, that's been on the battlefield and it's been part of this major part of history. And then it comes into your custody for a little period. I probably had it for three months. Um, and it was in my care and I had to do quite a bit of work to just preserve it and make sure it went back in that frame. We had UV, oh, no, we had a piece of acrylic cut specially for it. It's a special kind of UV acrylic. And it had like 90% protection against UV rays of light. And this piece of acrylic was, um, it's 750 quid or it's a thousand pounds basically. So I don't know, $2,000. And it arrived and I unpacked it and it was scratched. And I was oh. just absolutely mortified. Too deep to polish? Yeah, it was like all the way across, and you could see what had happened is where they packaged it, packaged it up. The company had just kind of put some tape or put some card on top of the acrylic, and it had gone through, and it was all the way across. So I had to get a new piece of acrylic ordered and put it all in. Did you have to pay for that, that? or was that no, no, the insurance? They, no, they paid. The company paid for it because I could prove by the shape of this cardboard oh, that their man put the cardboard on the acrylic. But it was just one of them horrible moments you've got. I've got helpers, I've got the flag, I've got the frame ready to go. I open the acrylic up, I want to get it in there with no dust particles or anything landed on it. And then I open it up and it just had this massive scratch across it. And I was like, oh my. This is but, totally um, off topic, but acrylic frustrates the crap out of me. But I understand why they do it for these big pieces because glass is yeah. too fragile when it's that big, right? Has anyone That's ever correct. taken a layer of this UV acrylic and then put a layer of just in just clear glass over the top in or so that you could so that you could clean it and not have to worry but it's still the acrylic is a barrier between the piece and the glass i don't i just don't know what would happen between that piece of glass and the acrylic whether it would show that there's two pieces together i don't but know you're dead right the reason they don't use glass is because if glass smashes if that piece of glass smashes you've got to have a massive tear all the way through your canvas right that's that's why canvases shouldn't have the glass on but the acrylic does scratch so easily that it's um it's a bit of a nightmare really so i, I don't know really what, what the solution is with that okay so i should not put this in the podcast because i am going to invent a a glass <laughs> acrylic sandwiched <laughs> substrate because that would solve everything i mean i hate acrylic because it, it scratches so easy you can't even touch it with paper towel Without no, it scratching. It's shocking. There needs to be some kind of invention where you get that nice clarity and protection that doesn't scratch so easily. There must be some kind of coating that we can put on it that would give it a little bit more strength. Yeah, you would think with all the technology we have. So how much mm. was this one worth? Do you know this flag? You know what? I didn't, I, I don't know what it was worth. At the time, my insurance covered me up to like a hundred thousand pounds. So I okay. kind of thought that that would cover me anyway but i think something like that would just be totally invaluable but the thing was the the army barracks guys they they brought it down on the back of some it wasn't an army truck but it was some kind of utilitarian vehicle they just handballed it in because it was it was obviously their assignment you boys right 
you're sorting those frames out and get it sorted. So I just chatted to them all the time. And they were a little bit not gung-ho, but it certainly wasn't like museum standard precision in terms of how they were going to drop it off and it was all wrapped and stuff. When I took it back, I did that because I was terrified if anything happened in transit. And it seems the courier firm, when they took it back to the barracks, so there was two flags, a painting of a battle. I had a smaller flag with a sword on the top, so it had like a sabre that was attached. Got about six pieces for this barracks, and the courier I used told me that when I when he turned up at the barracks, I wasn't there. Twenty or thirty lads piled out of the barracks, unloaded all the wagons, and within like an hour, they were unpacked and hanging in the new barracks, up on the wall, ready to go. And I just thought that was incredible. They were just like either that keen to get it up there and done, or they'd had their orders, but we just kind of whipped it all around dead fast and got it back up on the wall. So I like that as well. I like the idea of that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's funny how some people don't appreciate the value. I mean, I get it if it's not part of your everyday life, but appreciate how how valuable certain objects can be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, so let me see. And this is. Well, That's... yeah, two more two more random ones. Yeah, these were um, again a phone call just after Christmas. I've got some paintings that need cleaning. Um, okay, well, how big are they? I think they said two meters by one and a half meters, and I've got two of them. I said, okay, you can clean them. I said, I'll be able to clean them. Yeah, if you send me some photographs, or send them down, I'll have a look at them. So he said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then I took the job on, and then he said, I need them in three weeks. And I was like, are you kidding me? I said, I'd probably spend six months on something like this. But oh, if you can do it in three to four weeks, I'd really appreciate it. And I was like, oh. The money was quite good. Um, so I got some. Um, helpers in that um, help me do the help me do the work so I've got a couple of people that when I do get busy I can call them in so I had um, Sarah and Jude come in and they helped me and we smashed there was two of these and they were, they've been in a pub down south a little village in um, I think it's the Cotswolds so these houses are houses from the village um, and these two big panels this one and the other one have been installed in a pub for however many years I don't know how old they were maybe a hundred 80 years old, maybe 100 years old, and they were thick with nicotine. So we mm. were just cleaning this nicotine off these for weeks, just back in the studio, three of us, listening to the radio, cleaning this off. And nicotine, when you clean it off, is just such a horrible, horrible smell. Oh, so gross. Even, even if you're masked up, the swabs you're using is just basically a horrible cotton swab of yellow tar, it's just disgusting. And um, oh. yeah, so we spent three and a half weeks cleaning this off. And this was painted on hardboard. So it wasn't the smooth side either. It was the textured side. And I hate paintings on what? hardboard. Because all the, all the texture on the back of a piece of hardboard holds all the dirt and all the grime. So as you're cleaning, your swab cleans the surface. And then all the little tiny texture marks carry and hold all the dirt. It just makes it even more difficult to clean. So there was this one and the other one. And we managed to turn it around in time. We did it in the time frame that was required. But again, it was just a bit of a slog and a bit of a hard job. So even though I love what I do, I do kind of have definitions of what's a nice painting to work on and what's a horrible painting to work on. And mm. even though it, it's turned out nice, it, the whole process was just hard work. It was just one of those reasons that, oh, God, I just need to see the back of this painting. Uh, so, how, again, the client, the client so how do you get it out of those little crevices? 
you have to kind of different techniques so you can roll you have to kind of roll the swab to push it in and then as you roll in it the, the fibers of your swab go more in the crevices um george used to use a bit of salt so he'd add a little bit of um salt or like pumice stone or something a little bit to kind of give it a little bit of bite you've got to be careful if you start doing stuff like that and if you're kind of moving the swab and being your motion this can be like sandpaper and then you can take the top yeah. layer of the paint so you've got to be kind of really careful that you don't um, get too far in another method you can use like a paste so you can build a paste up with your solvent so it sits more in the painting and then you can roll it and get it out but again it comes down to a bit of like personal preference but it does just mm. take a long time it was, it was a slog that one and i think the next slide is the other partner piece to it oh so yeah that was the other slide of it. So and that one was even more dull because it was just a lot of beige. There was an awful lot of beige on there. So even though you were cleaning it, you were cleaning and revealing just kind of these beigey kind of colours. But um, again, this village, I can't remember what it's called now, but these are all exact replications of the um, of the village. And it sits in the pub now. It's, the pub's all been refurbished. So at some point, I promised Sarah and Jude that we'd go down and have a pint and... Uh, see it installed there and get to see what it actually looked like finished but again big painting on a big piece of flexible wobbly hardboard and um hmm. yeah so did you do something different to protect it this time around because i mean you're sticking it right in a smoky pub again well there's, there's no smoking in the pubs anymore which is good oh so okay. in england that's all that's all gone so I think they were, the company I did it for, they were framing it. Now, I don't know whether they kept it unprotected or they were putting it behind acrylic. But <clears throat> and that's one of the things I was going to say is that as smoking's declines now, um, less and less paintings are going to be as dirty as they once were. So a lot of my work does come from nicotine staining or smoke from oil, open fires and stuff like that. That's the main causes of pollutants. Or even candles. We had a candle on our mantle oh, yeah. and we were realizing it was getting soot on our painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's another one, yeah. Um, but yeah, so as people stop smoking more, um, yeah, hopefully uh, there'll be less nicotine, there'll be less work for me to do all, all these stories in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll do what I can to get people smoking again, so you don't run out of work. Yeah, do it. Just yeah. yeah. Once you've invented acrylic glazing, then you just get people smoking. Then you can stay. You can smoke and protect your paint at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's look at um, let's look at your frames. Okay. <clears throat> um, you've got. I find this particularly interesting because I don't think a lot of people, I didn't realize that art restorers actually worked on frames as well. This is really interesting. So this one yeah. doesn't look like it's terribly damaged. So tell me what's going on here. This one might be part way through, I think. Yeah. So basically this was, a, um, I think that next one is one of it finished. Yeah. So this one will have been, yeah, that's a finished one actually. Yeah. That other one might be just part way through. So again, really nice. here real quick. So yeah. you got a couple of these here. Okay. Maybe these are more interesting, actually. So a lot of the, um, when I started doing the restoration, I would look at the paintings and I, I was well into my oil painting and I loved the whole thing. And then I started seeing these frames coming through, the old swept frames and the traditional frames. And some of the frames were just amazing, absolutely amazing. With all the different types of patterns, you've got different types of swept frames, you've got double swept frames, uh, just a whole world 
in themselves of interest and I just kind of got really interested in frames and different methods of kind of restoring them and things like that so I kind of got really into frames as well at the same kind of time and the frames take the there to protect the painting you know that's what they originally were for and then we just got more and more elaborate decorative and um just some fabulous picture frames out there and what tends to happen is I'll get a painting that comes in that needs cleaning and invariably it'll be in an old stretch frame like this and all the plaster pieces and the guests will be cracked off be all missing chunks be all areas of damage it's been stored in the garage or it's been stored outside and the plaster's all kind of deteriorated and I will repair it and restore it um, now a lot of art restorers I think if you're going down the more conventional path I think if you went to university and did that kind of formal training you may well just focus on painting restoration if you're working in an institution but a lot of the more say commercial restorers conservators will marry their practice with frame restoration as well they'll either do it in-house or they'll know someone will do it or they'll have a frame guide and George was um he was doing his own frames as well so he had loads and loads of molds so every time a frame come in if he had a really exciting frame in he'd start taking molds of that frame oh and really do yeah so he could do a reproduction of that frame then so if a client wanted a certain type of frame, he could reproduce that frame from a certain period. And, and he, I think he really enjoyed that. He was a cabinet maker as well. And I think he really liked that whole process. So he's always experimenting with different kinds of compounds and different kinds of um, uh, finishes. And he, he was just really into it as well. And I think that kind of passed on to me. So he showed me his different techniques of how he would restore them. So invariably we'd cast <clears throat> missing pieces. So hopefully when the frame comes in, you've got at least one intact corner. If you haven't got anything intact, you can kind of carve sections out of the clay or modeling paste, and then you can make a cast and then you've got a complete corner. Um, sometimes you just make little press molds. So these blue, um, these are little silicon press molds. You can just use a two part silicon, form it together, press it onto the piece that you want to reproduce. And then you can either cast that in the, Desmonite or plaster or even just push clay into it to get a little press mold and then you can just go around the whole frame replacing what's missing so what you're saying is you take like a little mold of I, I know we don't have the exact same flowers here but you'll press a little silicone mold or a little bit of silicone onto this and create a mold of it and then you'll make a clay piece from that mold and stick it over here yeah, yeah, you can attach the clay piece on there, or you can cast it in gesso or uh, not gesso in plaster, and attach it back to the to the frame, and then you can seal it, and then you can recolor it and refinish it. So you can either refinish them in like a bronze powder, which is kind of like painting with like the, the pigments of different shades of bronze and gilt powders, or you can regild them in gold leaf and um, just make them look as they were and tone them all down as well. So. Hmm. I kind of do the whole thing it's kind of like sometimes the frame might be a bit too far gone <clears throat> and the client might spend more money the, the frame restoration might be more than the actual paintings were or right the actual, there's so much work involved in doing the frames as well but i always say that if it's a nice original frame like that it's worth keeping because if it's been in that frame for 100 years 150 years it's almost a bit of a travesty to kind of chuck it away and put something more modern on it but a lot of people will want to have a modern frame in a modern house and want to modernize the look of their paintings so mm. they do tend to kind of get rid of these old frames which i think is just shocking really but yeah you put an original piece in one of these frames and they just look fabulous yeah 
So some of this stuff looks like you must have just slapped some clay on and then carved it. Yeah. So some sometimes if you're taking molds of everything or you don't actually have that piece, then it's just an easier process to actually model in 3D and then mm -hmm. carve that out of clay and then give it your shellac and harden it off and then refinish it. Um, but again, that's a different mindset. If you when you're working on a painting in 2D, but then your brain has to kind of think differently in 3D. <clears throat> it's like a different mm -hmm. mindset to mm -hmm. kind of fashion and sculpt those pieces. Um, but again, it's quite nice to, to, to do that as a bit of a break. It kind of breaks up the day a little bit. But um, sometimes the frames are so far gone, you've just got to replace everything or fast sections of it. And then that can get a little bit laborious. But once those pieces are in and refinished and matched, the whole frame just looks fabulous. It just brings it all together. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, kind of so was this this little corner piece just pulled off of? Um... Oh yeah, there's the mold right there. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, right there, there might be a mold. Yeah, that'll be the mold for that piece there. So I took that from somewhere else, and then done a press okay. mold with clay area in there as well. Yeah, and then so. this appears to be the mold for this here. Yeah, that'll be the flower there, and yeah. that's that one right there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's really that's really interesting. All right, and then you got this other picture here. Now this one doesn't look like it was made from molds as much as it was just hand done. Yeah, there's probably elements there that I'm just patching certain areas in with the clay and then matching in and kind of carving it to match. So where your cursor is to the right hand side, there's only a little bit missing, but there'll be big thick cracks. So you might be just filling an area. Yeah, like here too. Like that area there, you might be filling a cracked area there and then you'll go over it. And the things with some of these frames is that you don't have to get it like a hundred percent accurate. It's just a matter of kind of filling those gaps to make it look whole again, and then refinishing over the top, trying to match the patina of the existing frame. Right. Um, again, well, it just depends. On well. I mean, back then these frames were all hand done anyway. I mean, so their their work isn't isn't symmetrical. Well, this is it. Yeah, <clears throat> some of the corners are different. So they'll have different decoration on each different corner. Um, yeah, but I just think the amount of work that's gone into those frames, and I know there's a whole industry around it, and they had different ways of making the the compounds, and the, they were, had moulds for all different things, and runners, and the way they put them all together. Um, but yeah, just some of the frames out there, just fun. Mm. George had always said to me, he said, it's scandalous what a good frame can do to a painting. And I think it's true. You get a good frame on the painting, and the painting might not be anything too special but you put a good frame on that painting and it's like wow wow now you've got a work of art oh i know frame makes a world of difference when i was in art school i had some uh, i don't know what you want to call them purists i don't know but some teachers that were like you shouldn't need a frame they taught us all to just put on just a strip of flat molding yeah, you know around the around like like a like a thin quarter inch maple molding that goes around yeah. every painting because because a real artist doesn't need a frame. <laughs> but I just you know so what? disagree with that. It's just I frames really do make a painting. I don't care how good it is. Yeah, it just adds an extra level to it. And then I have artists that come through now that I frame for, and we'll always have a really good discussion about what kind of what they're looking for, what kind of frame do they want. I've got a friend at the moment and she's really into a portrait painting and we've been looking at um old Dutch masters in a way that had this big black thick heavy ripple frame around the outside and the portrait might only be a tiny little portrait but the frame might be I don't know 
12 inches all the way around it and it just looks fantastic and those yeah. guys back in the day they would really think about the whole presentation of it they might change the shape of their canvas to match the frame um i don't know they just went to another level with it they were thinking of the whole thing rather than just thinking oh, i'm gonna flap this on it it'll look okay they were thinking of the picture the frame the setting everything the craft of it all it's just astounding yeah so tell me a little bit about, I've been looking at your studio all this time. Tell me a little bit about your studio and your equipment and how, how you set that all up. So in the background there, don't move that, move that way. Oh, I do this wrong. There you go. So most of those are the hand tools that I kind of use for in, in, in framing. So got like a section of hand tools, there'll be various hammers, various saws, various things. For Mainly those tools are for either taking paintings out of frames or putting them back in. So I've got a big thing about in the old days, they used to just nail a painting in, they'd nail it through the stretcher and it'd go through the canvas and then it's in the frame. And then as soon as you take that nail out, you risk damaging the canvas, you'd risk damaging the stretcher and it's horrible, but most of them are nailed in. So once I've got them out, if I'm putting the picture back in, I use like screws and offsets and make sure there's no damage to the stretcher or the canvas whatsoever. I take more Time and attention on the back of the painting sometimes and the, the, the front. I think the back should also be a work of art. So one of these tools are mainly for taking bits and bobs out of uh, frames and or doing small adjustments to stretches and things like that. Mm -hmm. This messy section here is all bits of solvents and frame finishing, um, different kinds of varnishes and shellacs and polishes and stuff, different varnishing brushes for varnishing paintings. Some paintings I'll varnish with a brush, some will be spray varnish. It just depends on the painting, the kind of finish that I'm going for, or the painting requires. Um, yeah, these are mainly all the, the hand tools. I've got probably a couple of power tools in the studio, which is just a drill, an electric screwdriver, and a good mitre saw. But everything else is pretty much a hand tool, chisels and things like that. I don't have an awful lot of machinery, apart from the vacuum table, which is on the other side of the studio. And that's just a big steel table that has a vacuum attached to it and is heated to apply heat to it as well um so yeah that's mostly what's going on there hmm. and i've got a very scruffy kind of brush section behind there if you can see that but yeah various different brushes they are supposed to be labeled up for different jobs and stuff but i'm getting better at looking after my brushes i can be a little bit slapdash with my brushes but i try and look after them as much as i can um and then what else have i got around here and just show you bits and bobs. These are some framing things that I've got in it at the moment. Um, this is a contemporary piece of an artist that I'm just framing up for them. Um, various other bits and bobs and lots of other bits of mouldings and stuff in the studio. So, and then I've got my rack at the back there, if you can see that, where I've got storage and work coming in and work coming out. So. Oh, so you've got lots it's of sample mouldings. So you're doing, you're actually framing paintings as well? Yeah. So I do, yeah. So I've got reproduction frames that I can get and they're made in London. So if someone comes with a, a, a period piece of work, I can frame them in the right style for them. Um, so as a restorer, a commercial restorer, I've got lots of regular clients that bring work in, dealers, art dealers. And then the majority of it is people that have inherited a piece of work or they want to have a piece of work restored to pass it on to the next generation. And then I used to send all my work away to be framed elsewhere. So I had a really good framer and I'd send all my work to him. And then during the pandemic, he more or less closed down and I couldn't send them anywhere. And I thought, well, I'm 
I'm missing a trick here. Why am I sending half my work away to somebody else? So that's when I started doing more framing myself and um, offering more different styles of frames for people. Because as I said earlier, it's kind of, it can be up and down. Sometimes you've got lots of work in, sometimes you haven't. But if I offer the full service, there's more chance of me picking up other stuff as well. So I've been doing quite a bit of framing and conservation framing as well alongside. So anything to uh, keep paying those bills. Yeah. So, <laughs> so tell me if you had, as a conservator, you see lots of art. Um, what advice would you give a painter um, from your experience as a conservator and how to make paintings that last? Uh, I'd use the best materials you can get. I'd, I'd use the best paints you can buy. I'd use the best varnishes you can use. The best stretchers, the most expensive canvas you can buy, the best quality stuff. If you're going to create a piece of artwork that's going to outlive you for 100, 200 years, why scrimp on using substandard materials or poor quality materials? If pieces of art that you're creating are going to live longer than you are going to live, and somebody's going to be responsible for them. So. Do the best you can. And in terms of materials, they aren't that expensive. A good tube of oil paint is, what, £12 or £20 for a really good tube of oil paint? And that the pigments in those paints will last far longer than using anything cheap. I mean, if you're just starting out and, and you're experimenting, then fine. If you want to create a piece of artwork that's going to live, outlive you, use the best materials that you can and... Um, and present it in a, in a way that's going to protect that piece of artwork as well, protect it in a good frame. You know, think about how you're presenting that artwork. Um, other things that would help a restorer, if you wanted to, on the back of your paintings, just say what materials you've used, if you wanted to say what pigments you've used, what, you know, if you're going to the nth degree, if you're serious about it, you can tell them exactly what um, brand of paint you used, what your palette was, what your colour palette was, what varnishes you've used. Something like that, if a conservator comes to the back of that painting and thinks, how am I going to, what, what's he using it? And then you've got 12 pigments. He's going to be able to match your colour tones a lot easier knowing what pigments they're going to use rather than trial and error. So sometimes when I'm restoring paintings now, I'll put on the back of the painting what I've done, what I, what procedures I've done, what materials I've used, what um, varnish I've used. And then that, another restorer in 100 years' time or 50 years' time will go, oh, I've got a bit of a crib sheet here. I know what I'm dealing with. Hmm. Um, so I think that would be my advice really is just use the best materials you can and understand your craft a little bit make sure you understand why you might size your canvas why you've got a ground layer how you're building those paints and what can happen to dry in times um, things like that if, if that's what your work is about I definitely would emphasise that because I see so many paintings that come through on poor substrates poorly painted but because the artist got famous, they're worth big money now. You could have a painting on a piece of hardboard. The raw materials might be rubbish. You might have used rubbish paint and rubbish pigment. But for whatever reason, the market now dictates that painting's worth £50,000. And somebody will buy that painting for £50,000 and bring it to me and say, oh, can you clean this? And I go, well, I can't clean it because he's varnished straight over his finished painting. He's used the wrong ground. His paint's all flaking off. And then... It's mm. down to me or another restorer to put his time and effort in to make it right for that client. So there's all sorts of different things like that that I think about. Mm. And they're kind of changed the way I think about my practice too. So mm. when you when you say to um, list your pigments, 
would you suggest like brand names or just specific colors like vermilion or should it be like a particular brand of vermilion i mean how specific would should one be i don't know i think i think even just listing your pigments would be a nice thing for a restorer to come off across in a, in a, a hundred years time and go this is his palette but i spend a lot of time mixing paints and it, if i've got one pigment that i'm missing that just makes it so much easier then like like Lowry use the same five pigments, so they say. So use the same five pigments. So when they come to say if this is a real Lowry or not, they'll look at what pigment is used. And if there's a pigment in there, let's say there's zinc white in there, and everyone knows Lowry used flake white, they'll contest that and say, well, that's a fake painting because we never use that kind of paint. Um, so I, I I don't know. I suppose you could just think what kind of level you wanted to go to. But if you use a certain type of brand name of paint. That people know is a high quality and a restorer at the museum knows it's got a certain oil level and a certain pigment level that might help them make decisions about your painting oh that's a good idea yeah so if someone wants to restore one of your paintings jeff in a hundred years time and they want it to be as true to how you created it if they're using exactly the same pigments that you've used in the same oil paints it's going to be a lot closer to the uh, to be your original intention Hmm. Um, I don't know, just maybe something. That's really good advice. I actually am thinking as you're talking, I'm going to order some stickers that have my entire palette, all of my mediums listed on it, and just stick it to the back of every painting. Yeah, yeah. I'll just get a piece, of, yeah, on a piece of card on a stretcher or something, and it just gives people a bit more information. So a restorer might get a hold of one of your paintings, and you won't even hear about it. But at least he would have a chance to think, all oh, right, this is going to make it a lot easier for me to use this black, or he's built up these layers, or he's used this glazed medium and this varnish. I would love that because straight away I'm thinking, all oh, right, this is how Jeff did it, or this is getting me a little bit closer to how he's painted it. It's going to give me a few more clues. Um, yeah. I think that's oh, that is brilliant advice. I wasn't, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, James. It's been a huge honor to have you on the show. I learned a ton. So I'm really grateful for you doing it. No, great. I, I really enjoyed talking to you, Jeff. It's been great. It's nice to kind of get my story out there and let people know that, I don't know, there's opportunities out there for people to do this kind of thing. And um, yeah, I've been very lucky to fall into it and I've enjoyed all of it. So yeah, thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.